Good morning. Welcome to another episode of the Climate Change Data Podcast of Paris 21. My name is Johannes Jütting and I'm here together with Sascha Amires and we have an exciting guest today, Lorena Aguila, a former Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs of Costa Rica. She also has had distinguished position linked to Save the Children, to the International Red Cross. And we are very delighted, Lorena, to have you today on our show. Thank you, Johannes and Sasha. Good morning to everyone. Lorena, we usually start this conversation by asking our guests, do they have one data or do they have one specific point they wanted to bring up into the conversation of climate change and climate change data? What is your gift for this show? I will say a data that has been produced by FAO talking about that less than 20% of all landowners globally are women. How do you see the link between this number and the conversation about climate change, environment, and even migration? When you look at this data of 20% of women owning land, that is worldwide. But then when you go more in-depth, in some of the countries, there are countries still in which women cannot put land under their name. The policies, both at the national level or at the local level, doesn't allow that. So there are a lot of countries under those circumstances. Now, there are countries in which national legislation allows women to put land under their name. But when you go down to the community level, what is called constitutionary law, women cannot put land under their name. And then even in countries in which women can own land, and I'll use the example of Costa Rica, 15.6% of the land in Costa Rica is owned by women. And those farms, let's call them like that, are less than 10 hectares of size. And when you look at the type of land it's very, very degraded. It's not a very productive type of land. So data is extremely important in this sense because we need to understand what is the situation that women are facing. When we ask women, for example, to conduct a series of activities like working on soil practices to become more fertile, they cannot make those decisions. Because if you're not the owner, you cannot decide. So we have worked with these topics in different parts of the world. For example, how can we address some of these customs and some of these practices? Like in Mexico, when men migrate and they are the owners, they leave their families, especially their spouses, in a very fragile situation. These women cannot make decisions on the land. They cannot be part of any projects. So we start working with the men and said, why don't you transfer the property rights to your spouse? No, I mean, it's part of the macho culture. You should not do those type of things. But then we work a different system and said, how about giving it as a concession, a 90-year concession? And they agreed. So we kind of um, have been working on this issue also embedded in the cultural atmosphere or context that we're working with. For our community, I mean, we, as we know from our own work, there are often huge challenges in terms of getting data on how issues like land tenure are affecting women and men differently. 
and especially at the intersection of many other factors, age, ethnicity, uh, religious affiliation, etc. So I wonder from your from your own experience and work, if you have any vision or understanding of how, you know, where the gaps are and how incomplete our ability to determine these things is when you look at different countries around the world. So I imagine there's quite a big range. Um, do you have any views on that? Yes, as you well pointed out, there are tremendous ranges of difference on how countries are collecting some of this information or are not collecting this type of information. I mean, for more than 30 years, we have been asking countries to at least segregate some of the data that is being produced at the national level. But there is a lack of willingness sometimes. So there is this myth that collecting disaggregated data, just the beginning of collecting disaggregated data, is more expensive or it's complicated, or they don't form part of it. So that is one area that we're missing a lot of countries, the capacity to collect this information. However, there are countries that have been collecting this type of information, really doing very incredible work, like Mexico, for example, that have, through the INEC, they have really created these uh, systems to collect disaggregated data. But the problem is that they're now sitting within these institutes and nobody's using them to inform policies or to make decisions. So that is also an area that needs to be addressed because you have this literally cemetery of data that is not being used and major efforts were done to collect it. Maybe I can follow up on this interesting point. I mean, in the preparation for this specific episode, looking at climate change and climate change data and gender, we found some interesting numbers exactly for those data that you were just speaking about. And one of the numbers we found was in the UN publication saying that 80% of people that are displaced are actually women. There are other stories that linked to various cyclones or there was for instance one cyclone in bangladesh in 1991 where nine times more women than men were killed the trend we can see from that data is is very clear i mean women and men are differently affected by climate shocks that's for sure what's the reason why does climate change affect women and men differently yes we have been seeing a trend in the past years to collect more information on that so why? I will say that we need to look at six structural knots of gender inequality to really understand why there is a differentiated impact. So, I mean, we have the social economic inequality and the persistence of poverty. We also have the inequitable control of and access to natural resources, including land. The lack of limited access to markets, capital, training, technical assistance, financial services, and technologies. We also have the patriarchal, discriminatory, and violent cultural patterns, the sexual division of labor, and the unfair social organization of care, and definitely the concentration of power and hierarchical relations prevailing in institutional decision-making structures in sustainable development. So we need to understand the data related to these causes of gender inequality. What are these structural knots that are the cause for the differentiated impact? And here is important to understand that this is not in our DNA. It's not because we're women. It's not because we're men. It's the way that we have been socialized and how these knots of gender inequality 
play along and make you more vulnerable. I mean, the, the vulnerability comes from these knots of gender inequality that make you more propense to some of the impacts of climate change. So the example that you just gave on disasters, probably the best study that I know is one in which they have analyzed 141 disasters related to climate change. And they found that in those countries in which there are bigger gender gaps, in which these knots of gender equality are broader and express in a different way between women and men, the tendency is that more women, up to four to one in some countries, die more from these disasters. But they also found out that in those countries in which the gender gaps are narrower, that doesn't happen. So if, if I can give you an example after Mitch, that was a hurricane that affected Honduras many years ago now. There was this uh, woman living on the coasts of the Atlantic. And Doña Vera lived in a house made of chalkboard and uh, sink. Her neighbor came and said, Doña Vera, there are winds of 200 kilometers coming. And she said, how much is 200 kilometers? I mean, how strong is that? She has never had access to education. She has never been uh, have access to any type of training on these topics. I mean, men were invited, for example, to how to prevent disaster meetings, but they were never engaged in that. So they started walking by the stereo, something that you should never do on a disaster. She had one kid tied at her breast and the other one holding her hands. She lost the two oldest kids. She was in a tree for three days. She was rescued. She was sent to a camp where, in her words, you know what happens to single women and moms. And she was raped. And then she, will, she went back to where her house was. And there was nothing left. And an NGO came and said, do not worry, Doña Vera. We're going to help you rebuild your house. And they only asked her for one requisite. And it was the papers that she can prove that the land was hers. And she couldn't. So what Doña Vera said is that definitely these disasters have a differentiated impact on us women. This is an incredibly vivid story. And I want to pick up on something that I think you're bringing out now. And, and that's, you know, data always has, has a role to play because I mean, we have to make sure that, you know, government policies are effective and targeted and appropriate to the needs of women. And so I wonder from your experience, if you see some of the some of the ways in which governments are responding to these issues, I mean, it can be quite difficult often to, to make sure that education reaches those that are furthest behind and in greatest need. And I can surely imagine that if you're a person living on the coast in Honduras, it might be difficult to get that education there. So I wonder if there are, you have evidence or you have some experience of the kind of lessons that have been taken from these you know, horrendous situations and, and, uh, and some evidence of how governments are actually responding and helping to improve the, the lives of women and girls. Yeah, definitely. I will use the National Determined Contribution, the NDCs, are these documents that the governments have developed in the context of the Paris Accord. Um, the first round of NDCs was developed in 2000, and 40% of the governments worldwide mentioned in one way or the other the topic of gender and climate change. Today, we have a second round of NDCs, and almost 100% of all the NDCs worldwide are taking into account the topic of gender and climate change. 
Now, what is important to mention is that in the first round of NDCs, they were not only poor countries or countries in the process of development that didn't acknowledge gender and climate change. For example, the NDC for the European countries did not address the topics of gender equality. So now we see uh, this tendency that almost all the countries worldwide are really looking at gender and gender equality. In some cases, they're talking about developing new data sets, using some of the data that they had to inform their NDCs. So we have been seeing some development in that case. Thank you on behalf of Johannes and myself and the Paris 21 community for a really a fascinating discussion. And we look forward to hearing more about the important work that you're doing. Thanks so much.